You're listening to Working Together for Working Families, sponsored by the Pascal Sykes Foundation. Hello, I'm Rochelle Todd-Yamoa. Welcome to the Working Together for Working Families podcast, where we come together to highlight individuals and organizations working to help whole families reach their goals. And I'm Jackie Edwards. Thank you for joining us. Today's episode is about family resiliency of undocumented families in the pandemic. Our guests today are Carla Villasiz, Resource Coordinator at Senator Walter Rand Institute for Public Affairs. Carla works as a research coordinator, leading, managing, and facilitating diverse projects in the region. We also have Debbie Panek. Debbie is the Director of Family and Youth Programs at Mercy Center, located in Mott Haven section of the Bronx. Debbie oversees services that include the Familia Adelante Family Forward Collaborative Project, which supports immigrant families pursuing short and long-term family goals. We also have Soko Hernandez Serrano, Program Coordinator at Qualitas of Life Foundation and collaborator in the Familia Adelante Family Forward Project. Soko has over 12 years experience leading managing and evaluating governmental and nonprofit programs across the tri-state area of New York City. So we're going to start with you, Debbie. What are some of the challenges undocumented families face during the pandemic? Would you say these challenges were unique to the families you work with? And if so, how? Hi, Jackie. Thanks for, for the question and for inviting us here. I would say that there were a variety of stressors and challenges that undocumented families faced. Some of them probably super obvious, the economic ones. When a lot of our families live paycheck to paycheck and when the pandemic hit in March of 2020, things just shut down in New York. And and a lot of our families where the fathers and the families work in restaurants and in construction or in local delis, they were sent home with no understanding of when they might be might be returning. Since so many of them are undocumented, they also did not have access to unemployment or a lot of the financial supports that were quickly put into place by both local, state, and federal government sources. For so many of the fathers in our program, um, you know, even if I were to name sort of a typical situation where a father might be in his early to mid-30s, he's been in the United States 10, 15 years, started working from the day that he arrived and has been working anywhere from 50 to 70 hours a week, almost every day and almost every week since. And and that has been, for the most part, his identity. So to suddenly be sent home and to not um, have that role to fulfill in his family was added a lot of stress to to the families in, in our community. It added stress to the relationships um, because the, the mothers of the families who were used to managing everything at home, um, some of them worked part-time as well, and that also disappeared for most of them. But then knowing that their, their partner was the one who was mainly being the financial provider for the family to have that end, that stress in the relationship was significant. And, and then to, for the dads to find themselves suddenly at home and, and being asked and, and needed to help out with the, the children's education, um, since the kids were all doing remote learning, and, and to help with the daily things around the house was a huge change. So there was a lot that just suddenly got tossed up in mm-hmm. the air and the normal organization of their family lives was just upended. Okay. Soko, do you want to add anything to that? 
Yeah, Qualitas of Life mission is to serve the Hispanic community and during the COVID-19 crisis, these low-income families uh, were disproportionately affected. So um, among the challenges faced by the Hispanic community and we identify within the families we serve were health, financial hardship, as Debbie mentioned it, access to economic relief, unemployment, housing. So we were faced with families not only having a struggle to make ends meet, but really having, uh, well, for example, housing. The Hispanic immigrant families face a unique housing issue, hardened by the racial uh, discrimination, low income, cultural beliefs, immigration status. So often Hispanic families are living in crowded houses uh, with more than one family sharing uh, the space. So that resulted in a higher risk of infection. So that's why when, when we talk about health, according to the, the New York Department of, of Department of Health, the Hispanic community had the highest death rate among the COVID-19 cases in 2020. So these added challenges that the Hispanic community were facing before the pandemic become greater and more worrisome when the pandemic hit. So you had a family uh, in a house that uh, were uh, having to, as, as Debbie mentioned, had to, you know, uh, reconnect with their family, make, agree on the, on the role that the, the mother, the parent, the kids had within the family. But you also have other family having the same struggle. So it was really hard time for families to understand what was happening. Well, it was uh, an isolated time for, for many of them because they were left out from economic relief, from some programs that were, you know, distributing help because of the immigration status. Also fear of governmental institutions or agencies. Uh, you had uh, many, many um, layers of mistrust. And when the pandemic hit, uh, well, that was, you know, even harder for our families. Definitely echo um, Soko's points about the immediate impact of, of the virus itself on so many of the families. Um, we had lots and lots of people who we, we would presume had COVID early on because it was, as everyone remembers, so hard to get tested to, to begin with, much less for families who are a little cautious about the healthcare system to begin with. And then they knew other people who had gotten sick who ended up in the hospital. And so people thought, if I go and get tested, are they going to keep me there? Am I going to be able to go home? And very often then, if they tested positive, the idea of isolating in the homes that, that Soko was mentioning were often um, not just one family, but two, sometimes sometimes even a third person, you know, from someone from a third family. But the practicality of trying to keep somebody apart from other people in that household was incredibly difficult. Add on to that then, you know, once the schools started getting their own feet under them in terms of how to manage remote learning, that was hard for everybody. Add in the additional barriers and obstacles of uh, English not being the first language of the parents. Some of them had limited literacy. So for some folks, okay, they, they may have been able to pick up a tablet if they didn't have one, uh, have a computer or a tablet at home. So their child who 
you know, it maybe is in anywhere from kindergarten to sixth grade now has a tablet. Well, you know, the fifth and sixth graders are pretty tech savvy. They can manage on their own. But if you've got a kindergartner or a first grader or a second grader at home who's trying to learn how to set up an email so that they can get the remote learning links and the information that they need, and the mm -hmm. parents barely, you know, read some in, in their dominant language, but don't read in English, it was um, incredibly stressful for the parents who desperately wanted their kids to continue in school. Um, they understood how important that was. They just were trying to figure out how do, how do we make this happen? Carla, I know you're, you were working on a project over at the Walter Rand Institute. Can you just give us a brief description of the whole family culturally responsive approach evaluation the Walter Rand Institute is conducting over at Rutgers? Absolutely. So we call it WOFCA for short because it is just, you know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yes, so the idea of WOFCA was that it was designed to provide a more nuanced look at the experience of Hispanic immigrant families served by collaboratives implementing the whole family approach. So we are the um, evaluators for the whole family approach over in Southern New Jersey, uh, looking at the counties of Salem, Gloucester, Cumberland, and Atlantic. Obviously, um, our evaluation has been going on for like almost 10 years at this point. So this study was really trying to look at this particular group of families in the long scale. However, because of the timing, um, we did this study during COVID. Um, so a lot of the data that we got was intermixed with, you know, between their uh, experiences long term, as well as like what they were experiencing at the moment with COVID. We followed guidance from previous research and set up interviews with a list of six to seven open-ended questions um, in which we wanted to ask participants to talk about the things that they wanted to achieve, who or what was helpful to them, what challenges they often faced, and what they were proud of. The idea was to get all this information um, in their own words and from their own perspective, however they felt comfortable exp uh, expressing it. So we did this interviews with both families and providers, as I said, last summer. And as I said, it was supposed to be a very open-ended thing, but we definitely did get a lot of information um, around COVID. Both Soko and Debbie were talking, and definitely I was not in my head like, yes, yes, we heard right. that too over here in Southern New Jersey, absolutely. There was definitely a lot of economic uncertainty around jobs. Interestingly, a lot of families, and once again, this was in the summer of 2021, so at this point, some things have started to open up again. A lot of the families that we interviewed, the primary income for the family uh, used to be the, usually was the father and they tended to work in construction and, and the agricultural industry as well. So it seems like a lot at that point, those industries were already opening up. So a lot of people were already, were still employed, thank goodness, by that time. We did hear um, a lot of families who expressed that they were not able to access uh, any of the services or the, I should say, the supports provided by the government, including unemployment, food stamps, all those sort of things. So they actually ended up relying a lot on supports from the community, such as food drives, just the general kindness of their neighbor. And obviously the collaboratives and, and you know, the agencies that were providing services, helping them connect to both formal and informal resources. There was a lot of families that did, did indicate that luckily their school districts were providing bilingual material or, or material in, in Spanish. However, it was still a challenge to be able to connect to what the children were learning and be able to teach that to them or help them with homework. Children were expected to sit down in front of a computer and just work outside of their usual structure. And they were not surrounded by their friends anymore. So there was a lot of just, they were just antsy. They just wanted to move a lot, around a lot. And because they were at the home, it was very easy to get distracted by things. Um, so the behavior management was one of the things that we heard um, about the most during the pandemic. 
this being the summer classes had just ended um so they had just they it was like very fresh feedback as far as to what that experience was like and the general feedback was i can't wait for them to go back to school <laughs> actually <laughs> yeah yeah right so so the whole family approach seeks to meet families where they are working together with them to set goals what role do you guys think that the whole family approach played in helping the families navigate through the pandemic? Debbie, you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I think it was helpful in a number of different areas. And the, I think the immediate thought is, okay, you know, how do they manage financially in terms of goal setting and what they might have been working on already? And um, I'll let Soko dive into that a little bit more, but I think that that connection with Qualitas was essential for a lot of the families who had perhaps been able to organize their finances pre-pandemic. So when the when the crisis hit, it was a little less overwhelming for them. And even for them, the pandemic was overwhelming, but but having that support with financial coaches through Qualitas, I think, just gave people uh, a space to to breathe, to think, to plan that you know they didn't, they would not have had otherwise. So I think um, it was a, it, I can't use a word other than essential. <laughs> In terms of the other supports that that the families got through Familia Adelante, the the goal setting is something that we talk about with the families from orientation, so from when they join us, and you know that. That looks very different for every family because not every family is right at that stage when you first meet them of, okay, we're ready to set goals and we're ready to start, you know, moving on them. A lot of times there's, there's that prep time of, you know, do they even understand what it means to set a goal? Do, and so we sort of walk them through that process. And, and with anybody, you know, goal setting, it may be a process of, you know, two steps forward, one step back. And that's, that's not different than, um, that's not any different for, for our families in the program either. So having having people who are already uh, working with them in terms of the coaches, the family workers from Mercy Center, from Qualitas, from Fiverr as well, I think being able to talk with someone immediately about their concerns for families who might whose children might have special ed services, that was also a huge challenge during the during the pandemic. And so having someone that they could connect with who could sort of walk them through, okay, who is it that we need to talk to? And and to realize, okay, you know, you know, you know what to do. It's a matter of help maybe having someone accompany them through a process that is now unfamiliar because hey, the school building's not there, the person I might have knocked on their door before and who spoke Spanish or who could help translate for me isn't there. So how do I reach out to the people I need to talk to? So having that accompaniment, I think, was a huge help in that, in the, the process of, of recognizing, okay, these were our goals were, all of a sudden they dropped off a cliff, and okay, I think, especially as things calmed down a little bit over, over months, to realize, okay, well, now that we're, we're not terrified anymore, how do we get back on the horse and move toward the things we were? Debbie, do you think that, do, do you think that because they were involved with the whole family approach and working with Familia Lante, that they kind of had these skills already available to them that they, you know, they could reach out, they knew that they were working on their goals. So they, it was readily available to them. So they didn't have to think, you know, like, what am I going to do? Because they had resources and you guys had gone through the different trainings and, and, and you know, with the families. Do you think that helped? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think, again, you know, crisis hits and everyone's just sort of in that survival mode for a little while. Right. But as they caught their breath, they realized, oh, wait a minute. Okay, I, right. I can talk to someone about my finances. The family workers got um, all got cell phones very quickly. 
And so they could quickly reach out via phone and via text and via video chat to talk to someone. And so, okay, there's a familiar face there. And okay, well, you know, these issues that I was having before with my partner are a little tougher right now, or things were fine with my partner before, now they're, now they're not. So how do we manage that? We interestingly, right before the pandemic had had a, a couple's reflection in February of 2019. And uh, Tanya Valle, who's our, the mindfulness practitioner with the collaboration, had done a couple of workshops amidst that reflection time. And so even the, the couples who had participated there had sort of been able to reconnect, to ground themselves. You know, we, we weren't asking them in that moment to reset sort of relationship goals. But by showing up for that activity, I think was a response to relationship goals they already had. And thus they were able to connect and have some downtime and be together in a way that they would not have had otherwise. Soko, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, of course. So I, uh, we believe that the foundation that we have built with the whole family approach uh, in Familia Adelante was instrumental for our family. For starters, the families from the Familia Adelante program have developed already skills they put in place at the beginning of the pandemic. For example, making a budget, having some savings, and knowing how to prioritize and utilize resources helped them a lot when, you know, everything was like a chaos and there were like news and there were people making um you know, not so useful uh, purchases. The families uh, had a moment to thought how to utilize the resources and how to talk with their families in, in these um, uncertain times. So they had uh, also a functional network. They communicate trustworthy resources, how to receive, you know, referrals and know where to go to ask questions. So that, uh, that foundation was key for them to feel they had someone besides them and how to, you know, trust and seek resources, knowing that Qualitas was behind, you know, vetting those resources. We, uh, for example, put in a place, a WhatsApp um, group where we answer questions 24 seven. They uh, share pictures of, you know, possible scams uh, asking, is this true? Is this resource uh, true? Is this uh, money or this gift card is, is true or is a scam? So we put our, uh, you know, efforts to make sure that the resources they were seeking uh, were trustworthy and were truthful. So I think that uh, versus the other community that we serve had a, um, an immense difference. For example, in qualities, not, not like in general, we met the immediate needs of the Hispanic community by uh, mobilizing and coordinating our efforts to communicate resources in, through a rapid uh, response strategy that included digital forum, forums, uh, informative materials, targeted workshops, and cash assistance campaigns. So at the beginning of the pandemic, those resources weren't communicated in Spanish. And many of our families, they don't speak English, as, as Carla mentioned, and, and, and Debbie as well. So 
uh, we had to, to make those efforts to collaborate with key agencies. For example, the mayor's office of, to protect tenants, the department of consumer and worker protection to um, disseminate uh, information, the mayor's office of immigrant affairs to make sure that all the resources our families were getting were from directly from from the source so definitely the whole family approach makes a difference in families you see the impact and and we saw the impact in in that moment of crisis and it's a comprehensive program that should be replicated in all the organizations that serve our community because it's life-changing i think so um, we for example qualitas were surprised our families had some savings because not all the community had that advantage and um, qualitas did conducted a survey with collaboration with Institute of Policy Center for Research. And nearly 48% of our Hispanic immigrants were unable to meet their monthly expenses because of the lack of savings. So it was a surprise that, also not that surprising because that's our program. We make sure that they uh, make and set those goals and reach those goals. So for us it was a way to, to see that our program work and that the whole family approach also work. Thank you, Soka. Carla, on the research side of the whole family approach, can you just share with us, you know, some of the findings that you found with the, um, with the families or practitioners you interviewed? Absolutely. And a lot of it actually, um, it's, it's congruent with what both Debbie and Soka are saying. Definitely there is the aspect of families just being more prepared to face some of these challenges that were that, that came from COVID. Just in general, um, a lot of families had already been involved in some form of like financial planning with the collaborators that they were working with, you know, whether it may have been for like future goals, such as buying a home or just having just like a rainy, rainy day fund. But they actually found this very useful during the pandemic because they had some money to tap into during those tough times when you just weren't sure if you were going to be able to have an unstable income. I think the main thing that we found though is that families were able to rely on a community that was formed through their connection with the collaborators and also in their connection to the collaborators, by which I mean that uh, the collaborators that were working with them became very much a part of the community and the way that they responded to the family's needs was very personal, very immediate, um, and very connected. Like they were very in tune with what the families needed. Which is very similar to what Soko and Debbie, Debbie were saying. Soko, when you mentioned the whole thing about what a WhatsApp app, definitely there was one uh, one of our, and I should say like the four the four organizations that we work with, Unidos para la Familia, um, Stronger Families, Families in Motion, and Families to College. And Families in Motion actually talked about how they set up a WhatsApp um, channel, and they were just kind of sharing all the information that they were getting. That way it was a way of not being too intrusive, but still making it available in one single channel in which they could find that information. That connection that they had to their particular family advocate or, or coach um, that was helping them achieve their goals, that was critical because they were they had someone who was checking in on them. Um, they had someone that they could go to and say like, hey, this person in my family got sick. I know there's nothing that can be done, but just being able to talk to someone about it uh, was an outlet. 
from the side of the practitioners, or that's I've been calling them the providers, they were talking about just really going above and beyond to connect, to just provide supports for these families. We're definitely talking about working outside of the regular work hours. Each organization has like maybe like three direct contact staff, you know, that is like working directly with the family. So in general, I don't think they, were, they had the capacity to provide a 24-7 hour service, but they definitely were the kind of people who said like, hey, if you need anything, just like give me a call. I will get back to you as soon as I can. Um, they had, as I said, the WhatsApp channel, they had text messages. We had some people who were very responsive to transportation needs as well. So in Southern New Jersey, we do have a huge issue with just public transportation not being reliable, not being very available in particular during COVID. So at one point, there was a family who needed to be taken to the hospital because the child was not doing well. And one of the family advocates said, like, I'll take you. And she actually drove them in their car. And this is something that was happening even before the pandemic. So it's those things which are require you to, t- to step outside your role. Carla, do you think that um, our families, the families that you guys serve, had the support of the whole family approach to help them navigate the resources in the community? Do you think that they were better prepared for this during the pandemic as opposed to maybe a, a family that may not have had that support or involvement with the whole family approach? From a qualitative perspective, I would say so, yes. As I mentioned, definitely just having the support of the collaborators, but also the fact that the work that that the collaborators have been doing with them was to help the family think about, you know, you have this very specific goal, like buying a home or you learning English, like how do we expand this to something that applies to the whole family? So it got the family to think to get to start thinking about, oh, when we're trying to achieve something like how do our children play a role in this? How does my husband play a role in this? Or how, you know, how do I play a role in like the goals that I have for my children? So I think it makes them a bit more aware of the needs that the children may be having during the pandemic. The one example that I keep bringing up is just awareness around mental health. When I was talking to families, I actually had a lot of families who ended up saying like, yeah, I am suffering a lot of anxiety from this situation because I'm trapped in the home. You know, I used to be able to, you know, go out to, to do my job and now I can't because I have to take care of my children. And they were also talking about their children experiencing symptoms and they were recognizing this and saying, I need support for these children. So I think that's just a great example of how families are thinking about everybody in the unit and understanding that things that adults may be going through, also children may be going through in their own way. Right. You know, and Debbie, you mentioned the whole behavioral health component of it, you know, with children, homeschooling parents are, you know, with them living in small spaces. And how did you connect family to the resources that they may have needed or were they eligible for those resources? Uh, eligible for, sure, in, tr- in particular for the, the, the children who, for the most part in our families, most of the, the children are American citizens. Mental health, uh, Accessibility was an issue in New York and in so many, I mean, you can read this over and over, you know, across the country, but certainly in New York City, it was an issue pre-pandemic. It spiked into a crisis during the pandemic and is, you know, just plateaued back to its whole, you know, wow, it's a big problem still. The reality, of course, that in, in particular for, maybe not for the youngest children, but certainly for um, those mid-elementary into the tweens and then the adolescents, absolutely, to be that isolated from their peers was incredibly difficult. So anything that was sort of normal life for them was gone. And if home lives, you know, for some kids were difficult, you know, the escape they might have had on a daily basis was no longer there either. The reality for a lot of adults is that seeking mental health treatment 
um, is still pretty taboo in the in the in particular in the in the Hispanic community. So I would say while for some people, if circumstances aligned and they agreed to seek it out there, then what they would run into was the issue of of affordability because while New York City does provide a lot of care either on a sliding scale basis or through the, the city hospital systems and, and clinics, um, a lot of care to people without insurance or without, without documents, you know, even on a sliding scale at a certain point during the pandemic was almost impossible. And then again, the wait lists, it's like, sure, we'll get you in in three months. If someone's yeah. really struggling now, three months seems like an eternity. So the family workers at Mercy Center are, are, not, um, are not clinicians. Um, we are not a clinic. We don't provide therapy. With that said, there's a lot of what we always refer to as informal counseling that goes on. The family workers, for the most part, are from, if not from the immediate neighborhood, they're from the community more broadly. And so there's a lot more comfort for families to talk to one of the, the family workers who with whom they can speak the language, with whom there's just more, who have some skills that's already at engagement and, and they've built, for, with a lot of them had already built up a relationship. So that became sort of a, if not a bridge to getting someone to a, a more formal therapeutic environment was for a lot of families, it became sufficient to be able to have someone to talk to, to talk through their issues and to get to a more stable place. The city, as a matter of fact, was looking at how to better capacitate and support community-based organizations. In doing that kind of work pre-pandemic, we had attended a couple of meetings as the mayor's offices were looking at how to better support and provide um, trainings for sort of those frontline workers who were basically doing the beginnings of behavioral health work when therapeutics uh, environments weren't immediately available. They set up a an academy for community behavioral health, um, which did a lot of online training during the pandemic on topics that were spot on, that were issues of, of trauma, that were issues of intergenerational trauma, of, of COVID, of using motivational interviewing to talk with people about um, COVID vaccines. So they really touched on um, Oh, grief was another one that they repeated several times mm -hmm. to give more people the opportunity to, to learn more about not just about the process of grief, but how to support people grieving. Um, and so our, our team certainly took advantage of a lot of those trainings as well. What were some of the things that you were hearing from your families or even your staff or yourselves around the greatest um, lessons learned during this pandemic? Yes. So something that um, some of the providers said is that they like a silver lining of the pandemic was that it kind of forced them to implement virtual programming. They had considered in the past, but they didn't think there was a good way to share with their families because a lot of the families had a lot of trouble either um, navigating different tech resources, like creating an email, all this stuff like that was new to them. Um, but also a lot of families just don't have access to like, a stable um, internet connection. So they just didn't want to do anything that would exclude families from certain programming. But with the pandemic, it kind of had like there was no other option. So it made them very quickly have to figure out ways to teach families, you know, communicate the resources, teach them how to use that, uh, figure out like 
how they can get access to internet and stuff like that. And families actually, like, I mean, I mean, obviously a lot of them still say like, I do not want to do that ever again. <laughs> but, you know, some families actually were able to like learn really quickly. So I think that it even shows a little bit how there is a way to do certain things. And now they're able to offer more programming and offer it to more people because now getting to a certain location is no longer an issue. Once again, as I said, with like transportation being a general barrier, like pre before COVID and now also during, you know, even now. I just wanted to agree. I was uh, wanted to mention that it's something that Qualitas learned. And we had that uh, on our pipeline, like offering uh, remote training. But we thought our community wasn't ready because of the tech uh, barriers, thought it was uh, something that we had to go through and, and really had it like make uh, offer time to adapt. So the pandemic hit and, and after like three weeks, when the pandemic started, we were offering the, those workshops in, in virtually. So we went from having 20 person in, in a person, in-person um, training to 100 individuals in, in a training. So we noticed that yes, our community needed uh, some training. We offered that, but they adapt and, and they were like flexible. And the, the issue that Carla mentioned, the mobility was a barrier. Now we have a whole family joining the training. Like we had both parents and we have kids also listen to to the worship so is that, that's something that uh, it was uh, for us a learning but also a, something good that we take from the pandemic and it's something that we're gonna continue to do and the other thing that we will learn was the our community create something from themselves so workers will not be the same after like the pandemic you know some employments are you know are not the are not necessarily coming back uh, as, as our community knows them. So we had an increasingly need and, and desire to learn how to create a business, how to establish a business within our community. And that's something that our community had before, that interest that they have always been there, but now it has increased and, and it's more relevant now. So we had to adapt uh, to that as well. And, and offer a program that it's um, fit and, and, and targeted specifically for our community and how to start a business from home. Because we have many of the mother that before the pandemic were just uh, stay at home moms that relied on, on one provider. They want to also contribute to the household and, and make that for themselves. We always, and navigate the evolving needs of our community. And now our, our community, I think that they have been more vocal of what they need and what they desire their, their lives to be. So that's something that the pandemic uh, gave us as well. I think that uh, entrepreneurial spirit that Soko was referencing really did start to jump out and flourish as the pandemic wore on because um, not only were there mothers who perhaps had been working part-time out of the house but couldn't leave, um, realized, okay, well, i got to do something. And so they started creatively coming up with ideas. But also, I think for some of the, the dads as well to realize, I don't want all of my family's well-being and financial well-being 
based on the, the whims of a boss who may or may not give me the hours we need or you know, if another pandemic were to come along. So I think seeking out that creative spirit, I think really started to become more pronounced. And as Soko mentioned, people became more vocal. I think one other um, quick silver lining that I, I, I would be remiss not to mention is that we heard in surveys and, and whatnot from a number of dads who really did once the panic of the initial, oh crap, I'm not working, quieted a little, really took joy in the time that they were able to spend with their children, that they were generally working so many hours during the week that they would see the kids maybe a day on the weekend and maybe late at night, if depending on the age of the children. And all of a sudden they had so much more time to share in some of those smaller daily chores, but, you know, beautiful moments too, and to help their child with some homework or to, you know, sit and have meals or to, you know, so it helped them take a bath and go to bed at night. And we had a lot of dads talk about how that became so meaningful for them that it was hard to imagine giving that up when, when work started to pick up again. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's a great note to end on um, because that's all the time, that's all we have time for right now. I'd like to thank our guests today, Carla Villasiz and Debbie Panic, Soko Hernandez Serrano. Thank you very much. Working Together for Working Families, sponsored by the Pascal Sykes Foundation, is published monthly. You can follow this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the Whole Family Approach, visit our website, wholefamilyapproach.org.